Welcome to Appointed. Well, on our second of a two-part episode looking at the International Day for the Eradication of Poverty, which as many of you, I hope we'll all know, that's October 17th. By the time this recording will be published, you'll have already heard from Professor Jackman around the human right to not be poor and the human right to have things like a guaranteed livable income. I'm very, very pleased to be joined today by Sheila Regeer from the Basic Income Canada Network and so much more. She co-chairs this organization and she's also a founding member. Uh, she was also involved with the National Council of Welfare. She was involved in the public service. She's done work in this area of social economic, I would say, justice or trying to achieve it for decades and decades. And it's in that context that I first heard of your work. And given the work that you've been doing, that we've all been doing, trying to ensure that there is a guaranteed livable basic income in Canada, um, what do you want people to know as we head into this International Day for the Eradication of Poverty. What could we be doing in Canada and why aren't we doing it maybe is probably the better question. That is the really important question, I, I think, is why aren't we doing this? So I think maybe we start with like, what is a guaranteed livable or basic income? And essentially it's income security. We know how to do this in Canada because we've done it for seniors and families with children. It's proven to work. It's proven to be effective in improving people's lives. It's proven to be cost effective. So what we have, however, for lots of people who don't fit those categories is kind of a patchwork that leaves people out. So the question is, like, why do we do this? Why do we have this very expensive patchwork? And a lot of it is founded on really old ideas of who deserves and who doesn't deserve some kind of support. So we're talking about myths and stereotypes about poor people and this notion that some people are deserving of state support and assistance and some are not. Right. And, and some idea that somehow providing income security for everybody is going to be ridiculously expensive. And that's just nonsense. One of the things that really struck me lately was a news report coming out of Toronto, and it's happening in other places too, where police have been sent in to clear out tent cities. Mm -hmm. So, you know, these are people who don't have options. They've run out of other things and they're like trying to get by, just trying to live. But what was astounding was an initial cost estimate, and I think they're doing more research into this, that it cost about $33,000 a head for that one clearing of tent cities in Toronto. So that's a one-time $33,000 per person to do this. And now we think about where those people are going to go. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they're trying to force them some back into homeless shelters where lots of people feel unsafe. Homeless shelters cost even more. Mm -hmm. Some of them probably were arrested, may end up in jail. Incarceration costs even more. Some of them may have been injured and will go to hospital. Treating people in hospital costs even more. So why do we do this? 
Um, and some people will say, well, you know, these are people at the very bottom of society, they've made wrong choices and whatever. But the population that we often forget are the ones who are working two and three jobs, who are struggling to get by. They're still managing somehow, but they're dealing with this incredible economic anxiety, chronic stress, overwork, despair, hopelessness. And that's where you get this mental health crisis from that, again, is costing our society in so many ways. Mm -hmm. And not to mention, um, you mentioned a number of ways in which we're paying for it in these, you know, going in and clearing out homeless people, the shelters, food banks, jails. And we know that social assistance schemes provide inadequate services as well for people. So we have inadequate wages, inadequate benefits, inadequate social assistance. And the push for a guaranteed livable or basic income is really about having an income tested approach that actually assists people more, still allows for support services. Some people say, well, if if you did that, some people more on what would be described as on the left-leaning will say, well, we don't want to get rid of the services. I don't know anybody credible who is arguing for income only without support services. And I don't know about, you know, what you're hearing about that, but we, do, we don't seem to ever question how much we spend on social assistance, how much we spend on jails, how much we spend on emergency health care for people who don't have the, the means, the resources to have the, the medication or the food or the access to recreational opportunities that would allow them to, you know, avoid some of the, the health issues that can start from what are essentially inadequate nutrition and inadequate support or, or prophylactic types of pharmacare. And so I'm curious as to, you know, how you respond to that, that some say we should only do this for people who are actually trying to work. Well, that was the, the theory behind the workfare pushes in the 90s that many governments went to and that cut out a lot of social assistance schemes. But when I speak to folks in Indigenous communities and rural communities where there are no jobs and where people are trying to take care of family, whether it's children or elderly parents or people with disabilities, or in some of the Indigenous communities, they want young people to be able to go out on the land, learn to hunt, learn their language, uh, start things like ecotourism. There's no opportunity to do that because the rules that uh, attach to most social assistance schemes in this country uh, one, don't allow you to be doing something else. And two, if they do, there are all, all kinds of provisos for that. And so I'm curious how you address that when people say, well, you know, any of those things or any of those stereotypes about who we're talking about and how we could best assist going forward. You raised so many important issues, it's hard to know where to start. But one of the first ones I think is important that you, you've talked about, and that's that we really do as governments in Canada, and it's probably true of many other countries as well, we do a very poor job of accounting. This isn't economics, this is accounting. We don't account for the costs of the decisions that we've made. We look at how much we're spending, but we don't tally the other side and look, are we getting benefits from these costs? What are those benefits for, for the spending? how might we do it better? And as you've pointed out, what could go wrong? And in our social assistance systems, so, so many things have gone wrong based on stereotypes, based on 
really flawed economic understanding. And one of the hopeful things I see lately is that some of the Nobel Prize winning economists recently are actually ones who are challenging a lot of the dominant economic theory. So you talked about so much of the work that people are doing that doesn't get counted, doesn't get accounted for in our societies, in the way we account for things and in the way we decide how we design policy. So you've talked about some of them, like caring for, caring for relatives, finding other activity that Canada actually does a good job of measuring work of economic value. Now, this is what Statistics Canada will call it, and I've worked with Statistics Canada on unpaid work for a long, long time. Work of economic value is is the same when it's the work that we put into it. So you can cook for restaurant patrons or you can cook for your own family. It's the same work. Some of it counts in our economic flawed system and some of it doesn't. So as long as we think that jobs and employment for somebody else is the only form of work, We're going to go really wrong. And then what happens, and you see it so much in the social assistance system in particular, that we rob people of their time, we rob them of their health, their energy, their bandwidth to undertake any kind of work, whether it's employment in the paid labor force, or whether it's their jobs as parents, as cultivators of the land we waste economic resources and we turn them harmful. And that just makes no sense at all from any perspective. So true, so true. So what's the way forward as you see it? How, how do we pay for this? And how do we convince folks who are not yet convinced? I mean, 50 senators agreed that we should pivot from CERB last year. Many members of parliament agree with this, but we can't seem to make the next step. And just as recently as last week, we have folks coming out saying it's a bad idea based on the review that was done in BC. Oh dear. Again, we face the problem of having three economists in the fairly dominant traditional mode of thinking about these things, seeming like they've issued the definitive word. So I I want to come back to that in a sense, but I think I think I want to switch from talking about economics to understanding that the whole concept of a basic income or a guaranteed livable income is not fundamentally an economic issue. It's a moral and political and accountability issue. So once you do that, you you turn the frame around and you start looking at what is good for society? What does income security for everybody allow a society to do that we really need so that we don't waste people's resources? We use the talents and skills that people have for a better life for all of us. So that's what we want. Then the question of how we pay for it is not, oh my God, how on earth are we ever going to pay for this? It's Let's sit down and look at how we're going to pay for this. Hmm. And there are some very reasonable ways of paying for it. Our organization, Basic Income Canada Network, has done that. We came up with three options. The most logical one in our 
time right now that's close to seniors and kids benefits, we estimated would cost based on our model, $134 billion. And we found $136 billion in resources that are already there. We need to reprofile those and turn that spending into investment that's going to get us a better result. So how do we pay for it is a very legitimate question. And there are lots of really, really good answers. We did it within the tax transfer system, but there's lots of other funding sources. There are other ways. How did we pay for CERB? We made a decision that this was what Canada needed to do to save its economy and save people. So we did it. Mm -hmm. It's a political and a moral decision to do these things. And then we find the resources to do it. I agree. And I think the challenge is how do we do that? And this period, as we are talking about Women's History Month, but also the eradication of poverty, I'm hoping that people will think very seriously about this, send messages to their respective members of parliament and senators as we're starting this new parliament and push for that kind of policy decision to be taken in the way that People pushed and one province, Saskatchewan, started Medicare. You know, we have PEI all set and ready to go and Mm -hmm. want to start implementing guaranteed livable or basic income. So I agree, it's time that we move. So I know you're doing everything you can. I'm trying to figure out everything I can do. And I hope that all of the folks who listen to our podcast will also join those efforts. I entirely agree. And I think one of the most hopeful signs I see is the breadth and diversity of people who are joining this social movement. So you've got Indigenous support from missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls and other Indigenous leaders, chiefs in their communities. We've got artists We've got engineers, we've got public health professionals, we've got faith-based organizations that have been working in multi-faith situations as well. We've got women's organizations, like there is so much. You've got grassroots support in, in the political parties themselves. So this really is turning into a social movement. And that's what gives me hope is that This is a people's movement. It is something that makes sense to ordinary people. We don't have to be economists to understand how we need good policy and should have a say in how that's designed. Because we have so many other voices in here, we're not just looking at this from a very narrow economic perspective. We've got anthropologists, historians, public health professionals, people who understand human life and how we make it better. So I'm encouraged by that, but I still think we have challenges. We have to learn how to get noisier. I agree. And uh, and we have economists and we do, as you mentioned, have parliamentarians and not just in this country, but internationally who are pushing for this. And I'm also hopeful that coming out of the pandemic, um, the number of world leaders who have talked about the fact that we should be gauging our recovery by how green it is, but also how humane it is and how much it takes care of the needs of people, not just the GDP. And so I am hopeful as well. And uh, I want to thank you for your lifetime of work, raising these issues, creating the awareness, creating tools, education and opportunities for people to learn and keep moving in, in this direction. And I know it's rooted in your own lived experience as well as that of your circle. And that's true for 
many of us. And I think we have to um, keep reminding folks who have perhaps a great deal more privilege that the three and a half to five million Canadians who have received no support during this pandemic deserve to also be part of this country's protective Exactly. Services. Yep. Yep. I'm, I'm very grateful that I've been able to do this work. Um, they're just amazing people. And I think there's just more that unites us than separates us. And I think this movement is, is growing that way. It's becoming bigger, more unified, and we'll, we'll get there. I agree. And I look forward to joining you and celebrating with, as we keep moving in that direction. So thank you so much for joining us, not just today, but every day for all you do. Thank you so much. <laughs>